My name is Kevin Hines. I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I believed that I had to die, but I lived. Today, I travel the world with my lovely wife, Margaret, sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. Now, we help people be here tomorrow. Welcome to the Hindsights Podcast. Welcome. We are very excited to have the one, the only, the great, the man, the myth, the legend, the one and true. Before I say his name, you need to know a little bit about him. He is a filmmaker extraordinaire. He has a movie on Netflix right now called Teach Us All, and it is a great one. His name is Andrew Ross, but we call him Whitey. Mr. Ross, how goes it? It's going great. It's going great. It's good. It's good. First question I have to ask you, Mr. Ross, is why are we here in this Spanish villa, and what is your role in this whole... (laughs) Debacle. That's really an awesome thing. Uh, San Francisco, Rindell Valley specifically. Across uh, the bridge. Yes, we are filming a documentary called The Net. The Net documentary. It is a unbiased historical look at the Golden Gate Bridge, the rate of suicides that happen there, and the long-time struggle for a suicide deterrent that eventually ended up in the form of a net and how it was opposed, supported, and ultimately approved and now being constructed. Andrew Ross, Whitey the Great, you came out here, why? Well, to, to film the documentary. But what was so important about this documentary and why did you do it with this guy? What was the impetus? Uh, it's, I'm, so I'm from Kansas City, originally Topeka, Kansas. And it was, I started filming when I was a lot younger, just out of a, as a hobby. It, and, you know, eventually kind of became like a side hustle. And so filming was not this like profound thing. It was just for fun. There was no cause behind it. You know, it wasn't to change anything. It wasn't to impact anything, anyone ever. And I think I was laying in bed. It was like 2.30 in the morning in like 2007. I don't know why I was awake, and I don't know why, I was just sitting on the internet, you know, you get down that dark path of the YouTubes, and you just go further and further down, and I I somehow ended up on Eric Steele's film, The Bridge, and it was, I I don't, I think I'd read something about it online, just the the controversial nature of of its content, and how he filmed it, and all this, and so I was really interested in it, and I was just at that point in film really getting into like documentaries and I watched it like 2.30 in the morning I watched it straight through and I don't, I don't think I went to sleep the rest of the night because it's just it's one of those films it's just the the content is so heavy so I don't even think I slept the rest of the night and it was really it was the kickoff for me really enjoying documentary and just that type of film was something I'd never seen before because my my film experience what I came out of was what I call the jackass era where it was Johnny. A group of stupid young guys going down hills on tricycles and shooting each other in the nuts with like potato guns. So I mean it was, you know, that's that's what I mean by like zero impact on anything ever. No educational value. Well, zero except impact on your on your weight. On my groin, yeah. yeah. So it was the first time I'd ever seen what could be done with film in a way that I had never experienced before. And so that was really kind of the catalyst to me deciding I could do this professionally like this could be done in a completely different way and the part of of Eric's film that impacted me the most was your part of the story because your part of the story was so much different than any other part of that 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 film because 
all the others in that film only ended really one way, and yours ended so differently. And it was it was the way you told your story. It was the way your story is portrayed on film. And it was just it's 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 crazy. I mean, it, you know, from this this place you you were in to complete hopelessness to choosing to do what you did, and from the you know it, it, all the parts of it, and it, you, you've told it a hundred times. I mean, you know, just down to like you you uh, I tell that story to people, and it gets the same reaction that I remember reacting with. You know, the the, the sea line and like the all of that stuff. I mean, just these unbelievable parts of the story, stuff you could you couldn't write something that compelling. And the fact that, you know, you've used it in a way to help other people and advocate for, for people who will either end up in that place or advocating for the ones who didn't get the opportunity to. So rewind all the way to that, seeing that story, the way it was portrayed on camera and the way those stories can be used made me figure out like, oh, I am a storyteller. I enjoy hearing stories. I enjoy telling stories. So rather than just retelling stories person to person, I could use the skill set I was already getting to capture compelling good stories, whether they're funny stories or sad stories or scary stories. I could capture those stories and rather than just sharing them on a person-to-person -person basis whenever I can, I can capture those stories and share those to a wide audience. And so for me, film is it's just storytelling. And it's not really making stories up, that's not really where I am, I'm not a narrative kind of guy. I respect those who, who are, who just make up stories, but my, my passion for filmmaking comes from just a place of finding stories and sharing those. So our connection comes from that experience with the net, with the bridge and Eric's film. And I, I retold that story, I think a few times over the course of like the next few years and telling people like, if you're gonna watch any documentary, like that's one you should watch. Like just this guy, he's got this story in there, like just, get to that part and like hear that story because it, it's it's crazy and so fast forward you know through all of my you know becoming a professional filmmaker and doing all this stuff fast forward to just this last november 2018 i was been working for the last couple of years with a local nonprofit that helps kids all the way they're called the family service and guidance center they assist children all the way from like three to 18. And they help them with behavioral health, mental health, and then they, they serve those kids, but they also help serve the family. So like family counseling and individual counseling and advocacy and finding them resources to help with that stuff. They're actually the largest nonprofit in town. And it's a town of a lot of nonprofits. So they, they do amazing work. The director, Pam Evans, calls us back in November and she says, hey, we got this guy coming in, he's, you know, because Topeka had been experiencing in the last few years, like a small epidemic of teen suicides. So they, they saw the need to bring in somebody who could speak and help influence those who may be experiencing that and maybe help sway them in a direction to reach out and find help. So she wanted us to set aside some time to film some PSAs with this individual they were bringing in and they're a nonprofit, and it was a last minute thing. They couldn't offer a lot of money, and they said, hey, we, we don't know what we can offer you of anything at all. Would you still be willing to donate your time? And we were very busy at the time, and they're an amazing organization, so I knew we would have made a way to work, but I just asked. I said, well, yeah, well, let's, let's see what we can make work. And she, I said, uh, who is, who's the individual you bring in? She said, well, his name's Kevin Hines. He's a suicide survivor. He jumped from the Gold Gate Bridge. He lived. I said, stop you right there. I said, I know exactly who that is. We'll, we'll find time. We'll make it work. 
And more than anything, you know, I think I was just excited at the prospect of being able to sit down and like explain to you this like kind of weird cosmic connection that we had, even though like in hindsight, like it's really not that cosmic. Like it was like, I saw you in a documentary just like everybody else did. But the fact that it was a huge influence on me doing film and that we would be sitting down filming together, like that to me was like, I couldn't miss that opportunity. So that's, that's sort of how you and I came together. And so, you know, I think we met at the bottom of the, the place where we were going to be filming and we set up in this really cool way. And so I told you that story and you were just kind of blown away by that. And so that experience like alone would be like, that would have been enough. Like I'd have been like, man, all right, I got it out there. Like I explained to the guy who helped influence me to do the film that we were there to film together. And that would have been enough. You could have walked away and went, oh, thanks, man. Cool story, bro. And then walked away. And I'd be like, yeah, all right, cool. We did it. But we sat down, we filmed some PSAs, and Pam had written this out. <laughs> this will be... <laughs> Sorry, Pam. She handed us a few sheets of paper. They had prepared a script for you. And I realized two things very quickly. You were a very unscripted person, and I already knew what I wanted to capture. So she handed us the script, and I immediately chucked him in the garbage. <laughs> and so we sat down together. Without and, her knowledge. Yes. Yeah. And we closed the door and she was stuck outside and I, ex I, I sat down with you and we started from the beginning of your story and we kind of went through that whole day together and sat down. And, you know, I had heard that story probably 30 times already. You know, the BuzzFeed video, the, you know, Eric Steele's film, the articles I'd read. So I knew how that story was going to play out. I was very familiar with it. What excited me most was to be able to cut that together and produce my own version you know, there's only one version of the story, but to be able to produce one of my own was like, that was exciting for me. Because it's just a crazy story. It's, it reaches people. So we filmed that together, and then that was kind of the end of it. And then, you know, you had had some projects in mind that you wanted to do, and you were thinking about who to partner with, and then I think you were sitting downstairs at like a coffee shop, and you were telling Pam about these potential projects, you were just looking for the right partner, and she said, well, you should go back upstairs. You're right next door to the guys that do that full time. And so we had that conversation and hope for the best that, you know, yeah, maybe you'll call us back, who knows? And then you did call back and then you and I stayed in contact and it really wasn't even about film at the time. It was just kind of, just kind of talk. Chopping it up. Yeah. And then eventually you talked to me about this project and we'd had a couple more meetings and you know, you were the first, I was the first guy you called on it. And we talked about it for, I don't know, three, four, five months. And then, I don't think it was like two months ago, you finally called back and was like, dude, it's happening. The net has been approved. We've got the funding for the film. You're Thanks, Margaret Hines. And so, yeah, so we set the date and here we are, filming the net. Filming the net. Yeah. A historical, unbiased documentary, a humanist documentary about the history of the Golden Gate Bridge, its suicides, the eight fights that were raised between 1939 and today that failed miserably, that, that waned, that disheveled, that dispersed, and now the one fight that has succeeded because all parties involved have come together to say, let's do this in unison and stop the suicides at the end of the, end of the day at the Golden Gate Bridge, which is, which as you know, throughout this part of time, I've been saying, the Golden Gate Bridge, what some call the most beautiful man-made structure in the whole world, what others call the ninth wonder of the world, will finally become, it will go from being that harbinger of death I've seen it as, to finally becoming the most brightest, beautiful, largest beacon for suicide prevention and reduction of access to lethal means in the world. Thus, interestingly enough, engaging other tall bridges, structures, and buildings 
to prevent suicide as well and force them to think about the consequences of not caring for every single human being that walks the face of this earth, especially the ones who cannot care for themselves. And I think this is a really important movie, especially in this time right now, and to show that, yes, we know it's going up. We know the suicides are going to stop. But seeing the history of the, the disconnect, right, mm -hmm. between the past board members who ran the bridge mm -hmm. and the new board members who run the bridge, and now our collaborative effort to effectively save lives via reduction of access, uh, one of the only proven ways we know how to reduce suicides in the world. But I want to go back to the story of how we met, because you left something out. And this is really important to show that, that I can be a total turd sometimes. But before we do that, you mentioned earlier in this conversation that a sea lion saved my life in the water. And I want to talk about that briefly. Matter of fact, instead of talking about it, I want to show you. I'm going to stand up, reveal something. We're going to talk about it briefly, and we'll get back to the story at hand. All right. So... This is Herbert on my pants. I don't know who can see him, but actually look at him right here, right here. There's Herbert, little guy. Let me break it down. I fell 220 feet into the waters below the bridge when I jumped. It was an instant regret for my reaction. Everybody knows that, right? Everybody knows it was an instantaneous regret. 19 of the former Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors who still who still are still alive today have come forward and say they've had that same instantaneous regret the moment their hands left the rail or they left the cord of the bridge. I was on no cord to be talked back to safety. I catapulted myself over that rail in the midst of free fall. The only thing on my mind was what have I just done? I don't want to die. God, please save me. Hit that water, go down 70 feet. Back broken, just destroyed. Three vertebrae absolutely just shattered inside me. Immense, immeasurable pain, the most pain I've ever experienced up until that point. Somehow I swim in one breath, 70 feet, to unbrose me without the use of my legs, as fast as humanly possible. All I wanted to do was live. You know that part of the story, folks, but in that water, some of you don't know that I was drowning. It was gonna be over. Near hypothermia in the frigid waters below the bridge, and something begins to circle beneath me. And as I say in my presentation, you've seen this. Large, slimy, very, very real. And I think, what do you think I thought? That was a shark. So I started punching this thing with my bad arm, which was I wrenched my right arm, and it will not go away. It circles faster and faster, faster and faster. No longer am I struggling to the surface or wading in the water. I'm lying atop it on my back, keen being kept buoyant by this thing. Still thinking, at any moment now, it's gonna bite off a leg, bite off an arm, or maybe be like Tyson and bite off taking the ear off. Sorry, Mike, you're the best. And it doesn't. It just keeps me afloat until I hear the murmur of the engine of the Coast Guard boat behind me. Creature takes off, I never remember what it is. I go on a television show, I say my piece. First show I've ever been on nationally with John Quinones. I say my piece and I say I thought there was a shark beneath me in the water. Guys, guy right, well people wrote in from all over the world when we went online, became viral before viral was cool. And England, Ireland, uh, Japan, China, Italy, they all wrote. One man stuck above all of those letters. His name was Morgan McWard. He was from Las Vegas, Nevada. And he happened to be on that bridge that day with his mother. He happened to be standing next to me when I jumped. And this is what he wrote. Kevin, I'm so very glad you're alive. I was standing less than two feet away from you when you jumped. Until this day, no one would tell me whether you lived or died. It's haunted me until right now. By the way, Kevin, there was no shark like you mentioned on the show but there absolutely was a sea lion and the people above looking down believed it to be keeping your body afloat to the Coast Guard boat arrived behind you. 
I love telling that story because it makes me feel good about mammals and creatures and humans and potential interaction. There's a lot of people that are afraid of sea lions because of that fish disease they have in their mouth, which, you know, I didn't get. Thank you, Herbert, for not infecting me, by the way. You know, there's a lot of people that are afraid of dolphins because of the stories of how they affect people underwater, which is very dangerous and abusive. We're not gonna get into it. But this creature obviously saw someone in danger and made an instinctual reaction. And let's be clear, stories like this have existed since the dawn of mankind, since history can record them. We know of dolphins sea lions, seals, other animals, foxes, I mean, even lions, sometimes leopards, going to the, even a bear, going to the aid of another human being in danger from other animals or from situations, and animals going to the aid, opposite, you know, non-species direct, mm -hmm. animals going to the aid of another animal who's about to get killed. So fascinating stories around the world have existed since the dawn of mankind. I just happen to be very blessed that day that Herbert, as I call him, came to my aid, and that's the only reason, buddy, I get to be sitting next to you hearing your stories, yeah. which is fascinating. But the one thing I want to get back to, which you didn't mention in that note about how we came together to that video. By the way, the video is called, It Was an Instant Regret. It's on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Kevin Hines. Shit, what am I talking about? You're on it right now, Never mind. Go to, It Was an Instant Regret. You will not regret it. It's one of the top videos on my YouTube channel today. Uh, actually, uh, and I think it might be the top next to Met My Wife in a Psych Ward. So, you, you know. You Did know, it pass that yet? Um, they, they go back and forth. They will now. They will now. I think it is it is probably the best edited video on my channel. And you, sir, are, are uh, I'm going to say you're a maverick on the editing frame. You really are. You do it really well. You know what you want. You know what you don't want. You know what you've seen you like. But let's get back to that moment that I really jacked up your whole situation. So I walk in to this, you know, blacked out room with a, a chair and a top light coming down and the idea is to sit in the chair and tell the story. We spent, I think, two, two, two to two and a half hours setting that up because I wanted the lighting to be just right. I, want, I wanted one singular light above you and we called around and had to find a room that was completely blacked out. I mean, you turn the lights out in there and it's like, it's, that's it. And we had you sit in that chair and you turn the lights out and it literally is like, there's nothing and then there's just like you under this light. And we, the chair that you're referencing, so we can we our office was two two blocks away from that. So we carried all of our equipment over there because it was downtown parking, so there's nowhere to go. And so we we carried all of our equipment, and I remember carrying that chair on my back for like two blocks, like just people watching me, like it was crazy, just carrying this really nice chair over my back. So continue. You want my version? Shit, yeah, I feel I'm so embarrassed of my assholiness on this one. <laughs> so. Yeah, I walk in, in this very same outfit, which is what, why I'm wearing this today. And, and it's a, a shirt that was in ode to Mr. Lee, let's just say Excelsior. May you rest in peace. It was the day he actually passed that that was why I was wearing the shirt and his shoes and yada yada. Well, I walk in and I look at the chair, I think before I even said hello. And I say, I say exactly what, because I remember the quote. You sat down, so you, you put a couple things down. I think they had lunch for you really quick. So you grabbed that, you sat down, you've been running all over the high schools. And we get in the room, and so we get a little more introduced. I, sh I, meet, I introduced you to Zach, who's like my right-hand man back home. And we got the light set up, and I said, all right, Kev, I said, here's, here's the chair, here's our setup. We're just going to sit down here. I just had this little bit of a conversation. We'll start at the beginning. And he was like, all right, cool, cool. And you kind of looked around, and he said, I'm going to be honest with you, man. He's like, I don't like this chair. This chair, I don't like this. This gives me bad vibes. He's like, I don't like this chair. At that moment, were you like, what a douchebag? 
No, I mean, it's it's one of those deals. I mean, I, like I said, I'd heard your stories. You do a lot of this stuff. So I'm thinking, like, if you don't like the chair, you don't like the chair. Like, I, you know, I want you to be comfortable. So, I, you know, I had a really, it's a comfortable chair. It's one of my favorite chairs in our office. It's a good chair. So I just wanted you to be comfortable. And you picked, like, a metal folding chair, which is, like, the opposite of comfortable. And so you just, you had a very specific idea for how you wanted to sit in the chair. Turn the yeah, chair it around. Like, it, it, it was very like, uh, what's what's that movie with the, the California teacher standing stand, stand something? He's a math teacher. You, you'll get it. We'll, we'll put a screen that shows what the yeah. movie is. Or we will because we'll be a copyright. Never mind. And so it was very stand and deliver. Stand and deliver. It was stand, Shout it was out very stand and deliver. It was, it, it was a mix between stand and deliver and the substitute. Yeah, yeah. Like get the get the metal chair that's totally uncomfortable. You're supposed to sit in with the back to you. Turn that BZ around, and I put my arms over the chair because I felt it would be more cinematically entertaining. You're that, the expert. <laughs> I wasn't the expert. I just came off making one film, and I thought I was some kind of boss, like a, like a reject. But no, I really thought it would work out and and maybe benefit the shot and benefit the entire video. What do you think? I mean, did the chair make a difference? It did. We So we took some test shots, and it was all very, you know, like, sitting back, like, relaxed. But you're not relaxed when you tell your story. That, that was where I went wrong, mm. where, you know, it was a chair where you could have leaned forward or regardless, but you were, you know, you would have been sitting like me, you know, and it would have been, which is not how you typically deliver your story. You know, you're very engaging and very dynamic. And so, like, sitting back in, like, a comfy little lounge chair is just not... It's not how you organically deliver that that message, and so for you, you you know, you flipped the chair around, you were sitting over the side, and you were actually more engaging with the camera and the viewer, and so when you're watching it on screen, it actually comes off as more engaging, and it's more like you get more of like a student and teacher vibe to it more than like because I usually do interviews in like a very organic like oh let's sit down and have a conversation type thing just because it's it's easier for the person you're interviewing like it's just easier for them to open up they feel more relaxed comfortable yeah but for you and, and that message it was they, like I said it was still for PSA so it was for outreach and it was for you know listen to what I'm saying learn something from it hear me and so for you to be sitting in that chair leaning towards the camera over it it just you know with you, more of your body behind you it, it changed the way the light hit you it changed the way you were you know as close to the camera so it came off as more of like a student teacher type thing like sit back listen to me learn something from what i'm saying and so it ended up working the vibe of it it didn't it didn't change the tone or the emotion but the way it came off on camera i think it ended up being a little bit more i try to think back on what it would have looked like had you just been sitting down in this gray chair and i think it would have it would have it wouldn't have taken away from the story or the the emotion, but it, it the engagement of it, the the like subconscious engagement of it, I think came off way way better. So well, good. Anytime now somebody walks onto my set that that's your chair, man. Decides like I don't like your chair. Like I'm not gonna immediately think like what an asshole. <laughs> I'll probably I'll probably take some merit in it. And go oh maybe I should rethink my chairs. So maybe, now I, maybe you talk to Kevin. Now I, yeah. So now next time I'm gonna I'm gonna text you a, a photo of my set. And go, what do you think of these chairs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love to is be your chair consultant. Yeah. That'd be wonderful. Well, just bring multiple chairs love next chair. time. Yeah. Yes. I'm glad there were multiple chairs there because <laughs> otherwise we would have just been sitting on the floor. And right. Been very, yeah. very awkward. Yeah. With our shoes off. With our shoes off. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, brother, I really appreciate you helping me pull that audible. You won four tellies for that for that uh, PSA. Four. I tell, did. tell somebody what a telly is. Telly is a nationally recognized uh, video. I don't like the word competition, but there's it uh, yeah. So you you submit your work in, in marketing and advertising, storytelling, narrative films, short stories, and you submit that. And there's a, a group of very talented artists and filmmakers across the country that look at that work and give it whatever award it, it deserves, if anything. And there's gold and silver and bronze and there's a, the, a thing, and maybe this will get me in trouble, there's a thing called the Addies, but it starts on a local level, mm -hmm. and you can submit your stuff to the Addies, it's the same type of deal, but it's done, it starts on a local level, so it's judged by local professionals, and you're up against, you know, the guys down the street, and for me, I hate awards, I don't like them, like I don't, I don't need a big shelf behind me with a bunch of silver stuff, now that I have it, I kind of think it's cool, but it does, it's not like a driving force. It doesn't define what you do. Yeah, it's not, yeah. Like a, it's not a huge driving force for me, and I don't have anything against those who do, because I think there's merit in it, and knowing what your work, your work is worth, and that's really why I did it, so like the Addy started on a local level, but I know the guys down this street, and I know the guys down that street, I see their work every single day, you know, I'm working right around them. And with them so I know their work compared to mine mm. I know it if you know this local company chooses them over me or vice versa that tells me on a local level where my work is worth so for me I submitted something on a national level because I wanted to know where my where my work stood on a national level I wanted to see how I compared to you know not the guy down the street but the guy across state line or the guy on this coast or that coast I wanted to know where my work stood up on a national level and the work that I am most proud of is is one of the projects I'm most proud of in the last couple of years is the one we worked on together. And those, you know, we filmed uh, two different 30s and we filmed a seven minute, we edited a seven minute version of your story. And the seven minute version was the most compelling. I feel like it's the one you get the most information out of, mm -hmm. you get the most content, the most lessons. And so I submitted that one as health and wellness biography, non-for-profit, because it was a not for a not-for-profit company. And, I'm sorry, and net for profit? Not for profit. Oh, that's what they said. And it is, and, and for uh, editing, because I'm just really proud of the way the music and the lighting and the way that the shots are cut. You know, we did a lot of really good sound design on it at the beginning and the ending of it. Check the link below. Below. Is that what the YouTubers Yeah, yeah. Check, the link below. check the link below. Link in the description below. You'll see it. It was an instant regret. And so I, I submitted that, I think it was eight weeks later, I found out that it had won four silvers, which is pretty good. I think they got, you know, they don't get, it's not like a pay for, you know, like a pay for play kind of thing. You know, there's guys that won't go home with nothing. You know, it's not a, it's not an Emmy, you know, but I don't, I'm not a Spielberg, I'm not a J.J. Abrams, but if J.J. Abrams is looking for a friend, I would love to hang out with J.J. Buddy Ross could be your friend, J.J., and uh, he'd be a good friend. I, I would love J.J. Abrams to be a buddy. But he, you know, so we got submitted in four categories, one in all four, one silvers, which is really great. So it told me that, you know, I knew what the story was worth. And had I walked away with nothing, that story and that video is still, you know, to know that it's like one of the highest viewed videos on your page. And the fact that we've, we received more comments and likes and more than anything else we put out just on our own social media. You know, the fact that we had two commercials that were running locally in a town you know, two suicide awareness PSAs running in a town that had been dealing with an epidemic of teen suicides, I can chuck those awards in the garbage. 
and the fact that those run, that you have the right content playing in the right area, like that's the merit of that yeah. work. So the awards are awesome. I love the awards. And awards are for clients. They make your clients feel real happy and they help you get more clients sometimes. So there's strategy in them. But for like filmmakers anywhere, you know, YouTubers, you know, big names, little names, guys starting out on a little little DSLR, like if you're if that's what you're like pushing for for just the awards, like you're you're already going in the wrong direction because you're gonna end up disappointed. Because you're gonna look at those awards and they're not gonna they're they're barely gonna get you new clients. All they're gonna do is keep your current clients happy, which current clients come and go. So finding the right stories and putting those in front of the right people, like that that's the merit. Those are my awards. Yeah. So and on that note, let's have a conversation about, and you don't know this unless you've actually looked at it, but I do, I've looked at it. I answer all my comments on my YouTube channel because it's relatively small right now. I'm just gonna be blunt. We have a 6,245 sub YouTube channel. We have about, you know, a regularity of average of between 150 and 300 regular views on each video. But this man's video did a few thousand and and I really appreciate that, that collaboration and connection, but it's not about the awards, but I will tell you this, I'm gonna send you the comments below that video because there's people that have said in various ways how it helped change or alter the path of their life in a very, very positive way. And I think it was one of the most commented on and you'll see like the actual effect of that video. And I think that's more of an award than anything because yeah. it's, it's, it's a 100% positively commented video which is hard to do no matter how many people you have on your channel. So I think that's the award. And, and to the people that give us these awards and these accolades, let's be, be, you know, we do appreciate your gesture, but that's not why we do it. We do it because the work matters, the people behind the work matter, and if we can affect a lot of positivity, hey man, let's go, you know? And that ties all the way back to the project I think we're working on now. You know, it's, if I was sitting in front of like the, you know, 12 plus people we've interviewed in the last week, Thinking, you know, just trying to get answers from them of like, what's the best award this answer can give me right now? We're gonna, we would have some sad, sad interviews. So, getting answers that I know are going to make the most compelling and worthy film. That's like, again, that's kind of that's the whole idea. I don't want to make an award-winning film. I don't. Like, I hope I do because I think if if we do it right, it's going to be award-winning anyway. You know. If, if the mission stays the same. But if, I, if I'm setting out to make a film for awards, a big shiny metal object on my shelf, like I'm, I quit. Yeah, I, I just walk away. Yeah. Walk away. So. so on that note, I want to be really, uh, I want to tell you a story. We're here with the great Whitey Ross, Andrew Whitey Ross of Topeka, Kansas. And then he moved out of Kansas, went to Kansas City, got a job, came back to work in Topeka, but lives in Kansas City. That commute is is no fun, but he's get, get, getting on cracking with Caleb. Tell me about your, your friend Caleb briefly, and I'll go into the story I want to tell. Caleb Asher. Yeah, let's uh, talk about him. He's the owner, CEO of the company that I work for, Sprout Creative. Yeah, it's a uh, it's like a medium sized marketing company. We don't like the words like firms or agencies. We're just we're just Sprout Creative. Sprout Creative at Sprout Creative on Instagram. We do, you know, we do video, obviously we do design, marketing, strategy, web, you know, we've got some really great account managers to take care of all of our clients. I've lost track of how many clients we have right now. Not we, a bad do, thing. we do a ton of really good work. You know, we, we like working with, we do a lot of cause-based marketing. 
that's really kind of where our heart is. That's what we can really strive for. Things we can get passionate about. Projects we can we can get behind and support and be proud of. We got a really good team there. Yeah, it's like it's one of those things where as we grow, we're getting further from it, which is a good thing. But we really started out. It's like a friends and family kind of company, where like you start out with this core team of a few people and. You need to grow and you think, oh, I got a buddy who does this is really good. And then that buddy gets on and you're like, oh, I got another buddy who does this. We can bring them on. And so you kind of build this almost small little family. And that's how we started out. So it's like this little family. Like some of us really love each other. And then like there's other days we really hate each other. <laughs> like any family. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's just like days where like we're beating down like the bathroom door, you know, for somebody to hurry up, you know, and like sharing the small kitchen. So it's like hanging out with your, your brothers and sisters like eight hours a day. It's pretty cool. So that's, that's us, man. That's uh, Sprout Creative. Shout out Sprout. Shout out Caleb. Let's keep it rolling. So White, mm. I want to tell you a story about, about my life that probably most people don't know. And I'm going to get into it. We're going to do a total 180 shift from what we've been talking about. And we're going to end this whole podcast on a very positive note. We've been talking about mental health. We've been talking about this film, The Net. We can briefly talk about the film that came out that I did with Greg DeCherry. Shout out Greg for Suicide the Ripple Effect. Thank you to all our Team Ripple world captains who hosted and showed the film all over. Thank you to our, our licensing groups that, that showed it in conferences and universities and still do today. And thank you for uh, Google Play, iTunes, YouTube, Amazon, and Voodoo for hosting it on their servers and on, on their platforms. Greatly appreciate you guys getting this film out to as many more people as humanly possible. I think we're at now the count is over 600,000 people have seen the film in 20 countries, which I love. And 300 people have come to the showings of Suicide Ripple Effect and said the film saved their life just by being there, which is amazing. And that was our goal in the first place. We didn't want to make a movie that ended in pain. We wanted to make a movie that ended with you feeling hopeful, bright, and alive. Greg DeCherry and A.V., the singer and songwriter, made a song called Be Here Tomorrow to end the whole film. After the credits, post-credits scene, credits roll, the Be Here Tomorrow song plays. It is a catchy one, and it makes you feel like you deserve to be here for the rest of your life until your natural end. That's it. I've been going through some shit lately, Whitey. Mm. And you know a little bit about it because you just, I mean, we meet each other. We end up doing this film together. I'm having a master class in film from the great man, Andrew Ross. And every night up until the last two nights, I have been having issues with, bluntly I'm gonna say it, seeing demons, feeling demons, being attacked by demons. Now this is a, this is a thing that people do not want to talk about who go through it because of their fear of being shamed to no end by people who don't comprehend. So let's break it down in a scientific level way. My doctors say I have sleep apnea, sleep paralysis, and a form of narcolepsy. A few weeks before I came to see you, being with my wife, we're having a full-on conversation. I'm standing up against the wall, head goes down, I go to sleep. Like REM sleep, like that. And she, on her couch, she's like, hey, Kevin, 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 are you okay? And then like shaking me, like what is happening right now? And then I come out, I come to and I go, what were you saying? Thinking I'm still having the conversation. And she goes, you just fell asleep. Or when my body would come to rest, I'd be sitting in a chair, same thing. Or we were you know, sitting at our doorstep of the house we just got in, in Georgia. And I'm on the floor, like stretching my back because I have a lot of back issues because that metal plate and cage. And asleep in the middle of me talking, in the middle of me making a sentence, I'm out. And she's shaking me to wake up. I stop breathing, all, all kinds of stuff. So it's really a scary reality for me. But I remember I got here in this Airbnb, which we'll talk about later, the story of that is fantastic. I got here to this Airbnb and the first two nights, three nights, I was having these night terrors 
and I'm telling you about him, and I don't know how you felt about it, but let me just show you, let me just explain something to you. Folks, I have been, and I'm just going to talk directly to you, Whitey, I have been seeing these kinds of things since uh, I was about four years old. Now, it only happened a couple times at four or five years old, and of course, a four-year-old's not going to tell anybody that they see demons, because it's terrifying, and people would say it's all in your head, and they wouldn't understand at that time, you know, 1980s, why a four-year-old would do that, but the science has come a long way. And there are a lot of people this happens to. Now, a hallucination is one thing. Let me explain to you what I'm talking about when I see or feel demons. It is horrifically frightening. Like, they attack me. I was with my wife for weeks on end in our home. And the best way to describe it is imagine first, and this is what happened like all throughout the last 10, 15 years. And they and describe it from sleep deprivation, which I really try to get enough sleep, but it, apparently my body is not, not getting it. And no matter where I moved, no matter what hotel I went to to work, no matter whose house I went to to sleep, no matter whose Airbnb I was in, no matter who I was with, these things attack me at night. Let's get right into it. I'm gonna give you four or five real examples. When it first started happening at four years of age, what I would see is a black shadow enter the room, go across the trim of the ceiling, come down the wall, come into my bed, and then begin to choke me. Now I feel its claws come out, and I feel asphyxiated on my neck like I can't breathe. I'm a Catholic, every time I pray, it goes away. Maybe that's psychological, who knows? But I do believe in God and I, have a, and I have a higher power and that's my prerogative, you do what you do, that's up to you, boom. Anyway, so that was the first time it happened. It happened a couple times when I was four or five years old, never told anybody, then it went away. Maybe I was getting better sleep for the rest of my life. And then when I attempted to die by my hands off the Golden Gate Bridge, when I jumped, the minute I was physically recovering with my back brace and my cane, originally a wheelchair, going from wheelchair to back brace to cane to, to a walker and a walker and a cane, going immediately from a wheelchair to a walker and a back brace to a back brace and a cane, and then out of that hospital, it was immediately in my beginning of my first psych ward stay at St. Mary's Hospital that I started to have what, what doctors call night terrors. And I'm sorry, doctors, but night terrors doesn't describe well enough what the F is happening to me. Do you think night terrors is a good explanation for what I described to you the other day? Night terrors? No. No. This is like catastrophically violating, horrifying interactions with things I cannot control and don't know are not real. Okay, so four years old, I told you what happened then. Clawed, red-eyed thing comes in, attacks, goes away. But these days, and in the past, living with Margaret, my lovely wife, I would have... They, they went from being these sheets of like darkness that had hands to choke me or whatever. Now, when we lived at 17th Avenue in San Francisco, 17th and Irving, when we lived there, these things got more aggressive. And the thing I saw as a kid was very similar, but now it's in 3D. Like a molten lava, charcoal thing enters my room, comes down to the bed just like the other one did, chokes me, his hands begin to burn my flesh and all I can smell is sulfur. I'm trying to scream, but it's squeezing so tight that I can't. And it's saying to me basically that you didn't die off the Golden Gate Bridge, so buddy, I'm gonna kill you now. And if you don't do it right, we're gonna come for the rest of your life. Kind of a thing, in this demonic voice and these fire eyes. And then boom, awake in real life. So you're halfway half asleep, you can see what's around you. And everybody who's recounted these sleep paralysis things describes the same, similar things. So it's not just me going through this, just nobody's talking about it. People are afraid to talk about it. Because of people's reactions. 
You know, people don't empathize with you sounding crazy, and I hate that term, but you know, we used it a couple times today, but that's a, that's a term you can use for things that are, for lack of a better term, crazy. I mean, I'm not even, I'm not one of those guys that, that like is so terrified of language, I'm gonna censor everyone. You gotta say what you gotta say in the way you believe it, uh, in the way you feel it. So this molten lava guy is just choking me. I'm praying, it's really hard to get him to go away. I can't pray out loud because I can't speak because of the asphyxiation. So I'm praying in my head. All the Catholic prayers I know upon it goes away. But after I jump off the Golden Gate Bridge every night, every night for, I think, uh, almost a decade, I would have first dreams, real dreams, of me falling off a bridge endlessly. Just endlessly falling. And now when I would hit the water, instantaneous death, and I'd wake up in real time, cold, hot sweats, didn't matter. It was, it was horrible, man. And then the, you know, I, I go from living in 17th Avenue to, to moving into a house in San Francisco with my wife, and the same shit's happening there every night. We're putting holy water in the house, we're saging the house, we're you know, putting more crosses up, and it's just like, it's just not going away. And the more and more it would happen, the more and more I wouldn't sleep well. So it just reoccurred even worse, and, and uh, doctors would totally understand this phenomenon. But recently, recently in my new house in Atlanta, Georgia, man, this, this stuff went like, it was like here at level 10, we shot up to like a 15 and then a 20. The sheets that would come over me and render me motionless and say horrifying things became visions so real, so physical, so terrifying, I wake up in a cold sweat crying, just crying my eyes out. Because, you know, seeing golem creatures just trying to reach in and grab my insides, like it hurt, man, I could feel it. And you can call me crazy if you want to, or you can look this stuff up and understand. Or at the very least, empathize. Whitey, then, I, then I, I'm, I'm seeing like certain rappers I'm listening to in outline neon form screaming at me. And then finally, like we're going to like sage people and you know, looking to talk to priests to fix the situation. And now, now they're having letters on their head that are fluctuating like a, like a, what do you call the machines in Vegas? Slot machine. Slot machine, like it's really rotating and say, and it's a language I don't see, but it looks like, it looks like death, you know? And they've got war paint on their face. And finally, like I'm half waking up to go, show yourself, I'm not afraid of you. And the face comes right here. It's this big and it goes like this. <sighs> it just screams at me. And all of these things are occurring, and it's night after night after night for months. Oh, why am I exhausted? Exhausted, but I'll tell you this, man. Whatever the heck it is, I found a way to cope, you know, by talking, by telling my truth to my wife, to you here, Whitey, to them. And I found a way to find better sleep in the last few days, and, and they haven't happened, Whitey. It hasn't happened in three days, man. Three days. A lot, what seems like a lifetime is starting to slow down. And I'm very, very grateful because it was impeding on my ability to function in the daytime. You know, uh, Whitey and I talked about how, you know, we go through half, half a shoot. It's only, you know, we've gone from 10 or you know, maybe even eight or nine to 12 and I'm like falling asleep. And I don't like taking, um, I don't like drinking caffeine. I do it once in a while. I don't like, uh, you know, five hour energy drinks. I don't mess with that stuff. I don't, I don't mess with the, the, the sport, they call them sports energy drinks. Do you, if you do that, I don't. I've got enough medication in my system for my mental health, so I don't need to take any of that stuff. So what I do is when I'm when I'm tired, you know what I do? I get to work, man. Beast mode. I get to beast mode work, hustling, training. Whitey, I want to I want us to tell a funny story. 
because we've talked about some serious stuff. We've talked about demons when nobody wants to. We've talked about my jackass move when I moved the chair. We talked about how we're gonna make this film and what, what connected you to me. Now let's talk about the funniest story you told my friends who I consider family last night. Shout out Ashley Hunt, Justine Luong, Joseph, and Maddie Ruder, Batman as I like to call them. They got engaged. These are my friends who run Infinite Strength, N-F-I-N-I-T-E, and the word strength. Look them up online, you will not regret it. They're an amazing group of individuals who do health and wellness for corporations and, and nonprofits, and the funds they, they recoup and the proceeds they make, they get a lot of that back to Baywar, Bay Area Women Against Rape, Thank you, Ashley Hunt, for doing the work you do because of what you've been through and how you help save young ladies' lives and young individuals' lives in general. We appreciate the heck out of you. All right, Whitey, you told that story. I need to hear it again. Which which story? We're talking about the chocolate malted balls. The chocolate malted balls. I think that'll be the clickbait title of this podcast. Yeah, this took place in a, in a <laughs> relationship of the past. To set it up, my, what were going to be my future in-laws were no fans of mine. They, I mean, I've, I've never experienced a mutual hatred <laughs> with any individual in my life. I've met a lot of people in my life that I like. I've met a lot of people in my life that I don't like. I've met a lot of people in my life that don't like me. And I think that's okay. I think, you know, there's like 7 billion people in the world, yeah. maybe less. They don't all have to like you. And you don't all have to like them. Don't like, be a people pleaser. It's okay. It's okay. And this this happened to be two of those billions. And so that frames it up. We, me and my my fiance at the time, were on our way back from our Sunday grocery trip. If there's any Aldi shoppers out there, you know it's like a bring your own bag kind of grocery store. It's like a Whole Foods. Yeah. And so you you if you don't, you go to the bin and you get your box. You know your used box, and those used boxes always have a small hole in the bottom the cardboard comes together. So we had our box of groceries, we finished up the grocery store, we're on our way home, this is a couple weeks before Easter. So my significant other at the time had got a bag of those like little malted chocolate Easter eggs. As you um, did. Yeah, candy coated, and we're on our way home and she cracks open that bag of the, the, the Easter eggs. We're getting, we're getting close to home, she's snacking on those, and I said, you know, hey, before you throw those back in the box, twist the bag. Make sure you twist the bag and, uh, so those don't don't fall out in the box. She's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, shut up. There's a hole in the box. Yeah, there's a hole, remember, there's a hole in the bottom of the box. And so we get back to the house, and at the time we were staying with her parents at this this big house, but the basement of the house was like its own separate house. It had like bathrooms and bedrooms and kitchen, all that stuff. So like we go down there and it was like having our own space. And so we're heading into the house and she's back in the car. I kick open the door of the basement to go in. And when I go to lean and kick open the door, I hear like almost every single one of those eggs out of the bag just rain through the bottom of the box. And so the, the floor just like littered with these like chocolate Easter eggs. And after the sound of those Easter eggs hitting the floor, the next thing I hear is Marley, who's like the family dog, like this 130 pound behemoth. And I hear Marley coming around the corner and I know she hears the Easter egg. She heard just like I did. She knows there's a snack on the ground. She probably smelled them. Yeah, and she, so I hear this behemoth coming around the corner, and I'm holding like a 50 pound box of groceries. And, you know, she's out in the car, and I've got the door open. And so this dog 
just inhales, like a vacuum cleaner across <laughs> the ground, just inhales all of these Easter eggs, these chocolate Ch Easter eggs. Chocolate for dogs. Dogs have a dietary restriction that includes chocolate. Deadly! And so, but it's a massive dog, it's milk chocolate, you know. That's a lot of diarrhea. So she comes in and I'm, I'm kicking like the dog away, I'm like trying to kick these eggs out of the way and holding this box of groceries. But she gets like way too many eggs. There's tons of egg sheets. So we go downstairs. I'm like, crap, Molly had chocolate. I think she'll be fine. She's a huge dog. It was a little bit of chocolate. It's fine. We put our groceries away, went on with the day. It's fine. That was like in the afternoon. We're sitting on the couch downstairs that night and her dad comes downstairs and he's a very like solid dude, not emotional guy. He's, he's a very like, he's a good dude. Tough dude. Yeah, he's a tough dude. Mm -hmm. Like he, you know, it's all Old internal school. stuff. Yeah. And he comes downstairs, and he never comes down unannounced. And he comes downstairs unannounced, and he comes in, he's just got like his, just tears like coming down his face. It's, it's like distraught. And he sets us down, and he's, we're like, what's going on? And he's like, I don't want to upset you guys too much. Marley just died. And so he gets even more upset, and she's getting upset. Cause, let me rewind and tell you about this dog. This is not just the dog. This is like the family patriarch. This dog sits atop the family tree on a throne of gold. <laughs> this dog is just relished over in this family. Like they love, love, love this dog. Certainly more than they love me. No, they hate you. They hated me. With a fiery passion. Yeah. yeah. The way they felt about this dog, as much as they hated me, they felt the opposite about this dog. That's how much they love the dog. Two opposite sides of the spectrum. And so we asked, like, what happened? And he says, well, we were sitting on the couch with me and your mom and your grandma, and the Marley just started convulsing and then just died. You, you, you killed the dog. And so he says, Marley's upstairs, your mother's upstairs, come up and, and see Marley if you'd like. Oh. And so he goes up the stairs, and I turn immediately to my fiance, and you can believe this, but I said, keep your fucking mouth shut. Don't say a word knowing knowing that if they found out what had happened with me and this dog and this chocolate that would be the starting point for a complete downhill race the rest of my life i was never going to get any better than the guy who killed the family dog wow it would have been blamed on me that would have been that would have been my title yeah. family reunion year after year after year we had a wedding coming up i could see every interaction and every introduction for the rest of my life to anyone i hadn't previously met as this is andrew he killed our dog which is exactly how they'd introduce you they would oh absolutely they would never even say this reality. is andrew he killed marley because everyone around them would know who marley was yeah no it would be it would be set up that way so we go upstairs, there's Marley, massive dog, and she is, she's dead, like it's done, she's gone. And I, everyone is sad, everybody's crying, and I wanted to be sad, I wanted to cry, like it, that, she was a really, really good dog. I wanted to be upset, but internally, I had like this weird like coping mechanism where I think internally I was laughing really, really hard because of the situation, just knowing like, I killed the dog, I killed this family dog. They're all crying, it's my fault, like this is me. And so <laughs> this is who I am. I'm thinking this is the, I'm gonna have to keep this secret the rest of my life. Me and her are gonna have to keep this a secret until the rest of the family dies. Like this is gonna be the bane of my existence until her mother starts getting very upset and she starts screaming, 
I want an autopsy. I want an autopsy, take this dog to K-State Med and get an autopsy done. And that's when I start like visibly sweating. <laughs> because I know that they're gonna cut this dog open and they're gonna find a mound of chocolate in this dog's stomach. Three pounds of chocolate. And that chocolate is gonna come right back to me. Secrets out. So I get in the car with her dad, we drive the dog to K-State Med, the, the vet school they have there. And during the course ride, it was a very, very quiet ride. It was like nine o'clock at night. A very, very quiet, very, very dark ride. And me and her dad are sitting in the front seat. We're the only two that went, put Marlon in the back of the Jeep. We're driving. And it's this very like solemn moment, you know, like almost like funeral procession. And we're sitting in the front seat and all of a sudden we hear this giant release of gas from Marley. And whatever was left, whatever toxicity was left inside of that behemoth of an animal flooded the Jeep. And it was like this final kind of funny moment. And we drop her off at the vet. He explains that they want an autopsy done. And I think I had the longest two or three weeks of my life waiting for that to come back, knowing that the vet was gonna write them a letter going, hey, dog confirmed dead, Andrew Fetter chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Signed, veterinarian such and such. And I, I was gonna have that, and that was gonna be my like scarlet letter forever. It's like, Andrew, the guy who kills your family dog. Quit so they, yeah, so three weeks go by, I didn't get any work done for like two or three weeks. Like I'm just, every day I'm just sitting at my desk, just waiting to find out that the family hates me. And we or get, just put a hit on you or something. Yeah, and I get a, I get a call uh, from my lady at the time who says, hey, autopsy just came back. Apparently, Marley had a massive blood clot that went straight to her heart. Instant. They found no traces of chocolate. Whether or not they looked for it or didn't even, didn't see anything. But all of this, all of this stress, all this anguish and sadness and frustration, all because... She didn't twist the bag. <laughs> to always twist the bag. Twist the bag. Dude, if, if Andrew tells you to twist the bag, twist the freaking bag. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You. What do you take away from that? Twist the bag. Besides that, you were one of the luckiest humans on the face of the planet. Well. Potentially. I, I was the, probably the second luckiest in the room right now. Right. Fair enough. <laughs> at least. At, at least. At yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow, Whitey, that was that was a phenomenal story. I think we're gonna. What, <laughs> what's our time on? How, how long have we been going for? We uh, we're at one oh seven. One oh seven. One oh seven. We're an hour and seven minutes into this number amazing podcast. You heard me. I didn't give you a number. I would just call it A. This is number. This is the A podcast in the world. We are going to be having some of the most fantastic, phenomenal, intelligent, incredible, indubitable. Totally capable and flawless individuals, groups, celebrities, YouTube influencers, and Instagram stars, some athletes, some great athletes, pro athletes, college athletes, and so much more coming up on this podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about mental health. We're going to talk a little bit about suicide prevention, hope, healing, and recovery, and the art of wellness. We're going to talk a lot about stories that make you laugh. Stories that might make you cry and stories that make your body want to move and get it in where you can fit it in for your brain, mind, and behavioral well-being so you can change your life today. We're going to be talking, talking, talking. You're going to be joining and listening on all available platforms online that exist. We will be there. My name is Kevin Hines. This is... Andrew 
Ross. Andrew Whitey Ross, one of the greatest filmmakers. I know that is not a joke. When you see the net, you're gonna be blown away. This film is gonna change lives. It's gonna augment people's vision on what they thought they knew their whole lives about caring more about aesthetics than they do about a human life. And uh, I want us to take it away with a little story about Hope Myself. And this story is about the things I have learned from my mom and dad, and then this thing is a wrap. It'll be quick, it'll be concise, here we go. Patrick Kevin Hines, my dad, I'm John Kevin Hines, formerly Giovanni Gabriel Prasad Panales was my birth name, I'm adopted by Pat and Debbie Hines, they took me in. They may be their son, I love them dearly, they have their flaws, we've had our fights, we've had our issues, even some really hard shit that I'm not ready to talk about yet, that'll be in a different blog on the same channel, but Patrick Hines, real quick, thank you for teaching me the value of hard work. Because as he says, ain't nothing good ever come without it. Thank you, Dad. I appreciate that. I work tirelessly to the bone every day to help people to do the best I can to try to help them in the ways that I can. Thank you, Margaret, for helping me do all of that and being my best friend and my, my go-to, my hardcore rock, my ride or die, and my beautiful, loving, and caring wife and caregiver for my mental pain. You're the best. Now, Mom, Debbie Hines, you know, we haven't had the best of latest relationships. We're trying to mend that right now. I really am glad and grateful that we are changing our relationship and making it a better one. I, I tried to see it this week in San Francisco, but you don't get back until before I leave. Nonetheless, Mom, you taught me something I want to impart to all of you podcasters today. Mom, you taught me how to be kind, compassionate, loving, caring, empathetic, and non-judgmental to every single person you ever come into contact with, no matter their behavior toward you, no matter their ethnic makeup, no matter their socioeconomic background, no matter their religious affiliation or none, political affiliation or none, and no matter anything most people judge others for. Difference, right, Whitey? You taught me to give back, because giving is the true receiving. Pat, you had a lot to do with that too, Dado. And I wanna end this on a note of gratitude. I am so grateful to meet you, Whitey, to have you come in my life, have me enter yours, and us change each of our lives to build a relationship. This wasn't a road trip. This was a? Broad trip. Broad trip. That's a copyright on Whitey. He made, that's, that's his. We're gonna hashtag he, right. We're hashtag. Broad trip, right? Bro trip. Right here. You do broad, I'll do trip. Right here. Right, we'll do, right there. Broad trip. And you coming to my life and helping me to see this vision into reality means the freaking world to me. So huge package of gratitude out to Whitey Ross, to my mom, my dad, my wife, and lastly, huge, huge pack of gratitude to Kayla Basher and Sprout Creative for lending us a few things that have mattered to make this film possible. All right, guys, that's Whitey Ross. Good day, good evening, good night, compared to where you are ever in the world, and holla at your boys. Let's go. Woo! Woo! Margaret and I love sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. For more content and inspiration, Go to KevinHindsStory.com or visit us on all social medias at KevinHindsStory or on YouTube.com slash KevinHind.